how might you verify that someone is who they claim to be? If someone came to your door claiming to be a police detective, how would you verify his or her identity? Well, I'm guessing you would probably ask to see their badge, right? To see their ID. Now, somebody could maybe fake a badge, fake an ID. Um, So what do you do then? Well, what if someone came and claimed to be your long-lost relative? Maybe they claim to be a a, a sibling that you didn't know about. Maybe they claim to be a parent, a lost parent. How would you know that they were who they claimed to be? You'd probably ask for some proof, wouldn't you? Maybe that would come in the form of even a genetic test to see if, in fact, this person really is your relative. Keep that question in mind as we return to our study for this month, a study called For Easter. Last week, I made the bold suggestion uh, to you that when it comes to your favorite day, I suggested that you ditch your wedding day, that you ditch Christmas day, that you ditch Black Friday or your birthday, and that you put Easter in that top slot. Why such a suggestion? Because of what God's Word tells us about Easter. That is, what God's Word tells us about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead. Now, last time, I mentioned at least four reasons. Why is this series called For Easter? Well, there are four reasons that Easter should be your favorite day. And we begin by talking about, we began by talking about how for believers, Easter Day was the day that we were freed from slavery. That was at least the day when our freedom was secured even if we had not yet come to experience that freedom. So let's look together at a second reason this morning. Reason number two is this. Take a look. Easter should be your favorite day because it's the day we receive the most powerful testimony of Jesus as Lord. Easter should be your favorite day because it's the day we received the most powerful testimony of Jesus as Lord. Okay, on what is that statement based? Well, look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read. We know who's writing here because he says it. First word, Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. He promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What else about this gospel? Well, it's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from, literally, from among the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow, lots that is right there. I mean, thick, 
with, with information thick with powerful truths. Let me do this. To break it down, let's use three key words drawn right from the passage to help you, to help me, to help us understand what Paul is telling his readers here. The first word is this word gospel. Gospel. Paul tells us that as an apostle, he has been set apart for the gospel of God. The good news of God. Remember, gospel simply means good news, doesn't it? Good news. So what kind of good news is this? Well, Scripture fills up that question with answers, doesn't it? But let's start with the context. What does the, 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 the passage that we just looked at together tell us about the content of this good news? It's good news that was, verse 2, promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Old Testament. Paul is not pulling this out of thin air, is he? No. He's actually working as a part of the fulfillment of what God has planned and predicted for generations now, hundreds of years, centuries now. Uh, some would say even older if we push it all the way back to the, to the words of God in the garden about the serpent and the seed of the woman. Even more importantly, as we see here, it's good news, verse 3, concerning God's Son. Concerning God's Son. So, if we, don't, if we claim to declare the gospel, if we claim to declare the good news, but we're not talking about God's Son, Jesus Christ, we're not talking about the gospel. <laughs> that's, a, that's a totally different gospel. The gospel is always about God's Son. So, if we wanted to learn more, of course, about the good news of the gospel that Paul preached, we could look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes there in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. But then he goes on, clearly he's talking about the gospel here, but take a look at this. He goes on to unpack this in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That sounds like Paul. We just heard he said it's promised beforehand through the prophets. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So it's that description right there from 1 Corinthians that leads us to a second key word in Romans chapter 1. It is the word, number 2, is the word resurrection. Resurrection. Not only is this gospel focused on the death and burial of Jesus, as we heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we hear throughout Paul's writings, but also the fact that he was raised on the third day. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul brings us to that climactic event. Do you see it there? Paul points us to Easter in that verse. Paul understood how central the resurrection was to the Christian message. 
He understood how essential it was, how critical, how pivotal it was to our hope as believers. How do, I know, how do we know that? Well, one of the passage, passages, if we go back over to 1 Corinthians 15, listen to how Paul talks about this, the, 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 the criticalness of the resurrection. Verses 14, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Pointless. And your faith is in vain. It's, fut- it's futile. It's pointless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, our fellow believers who have passed, they've perished if Christ has not been raised. In Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. Hard to imagine that there are uh, those who hold to uh, a kind of Christianity often called uh, liberal Christianity, theologically liberal Christianity, that do not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That their version of Christianity is all about this life. But Paul says if we only have hope for this life, the only thing that we deserve from others is pity. We live in a delusion. We're fooling ourselves about the importance, whatever importance we're trying to give to this thing we call Christianity. That's not the truth, brothers and sisters. So, from those verses, it's abundantly clear, isn't it, how uh, Paul saw this as the linchpin of our faith, this reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, But why does Paul emphasize the resurrection here in Romans chapter 1, verse 4? Why, we're talking broadly about Paul's understanding of the, of the resurrection. Why does he emphasize the resurrection here in verse 4? Well, that takes us to keyword number 3. And that keyword is David. David. Notice how Paul, once he mentions God's Son in verse 3, do you see that in Romans 1? He mentions God's Son. He immediately goes on to tell us about his lineage. It's the first thing he mentions that he was descended from David according to the flesh. If we're talking about this age and this earthly life, you need to know that he was descended from David. That's going to come up again in just a minute. Uh, That's King David. Yep, King David, the one who took down Goliath. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has talked about both David and the resurrection. Okay, it's not the first time. Uh, this is the very first book, the letter that we have from Paul. But if we actually go into the book of Acts, into the text from the very first sermon that's recorded in Scripture, from the Apostle Paul himself, we're going to find these same two subjects. We're going to find the resurrection and David put together by Paul. Where is that taking place? It's in Acts chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. Well, actually, in chapter 13, verses 22 and 23, 
Paul makes the same point he's making here in Romans 1. He's simply telling us Jesus is from the family of David. He's a descendant of David. Now, Paul goes on to describe, as you move through Acts 13, he describes how God raised him from the dead in verse 30 of Acts 13. But listen to where he goes next in verses 32 and 33. We'll have that here for you on the screen. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, in accordance with the Scriptures, right? Through the prophets of the Old Testament. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, Where does that come from? Well, Paul just told us it comes from Psalm 2. The second Psalm. It comes from Psalm 2. It's actually verse 7. Now that Psalm, if you know anything about Psalm 2, if I gave you a few minutes just to look it over, you would come to the conclusion, because it's pretty obvious, that Psalm is about the Messiah. It's about the Messiah. It's about the Messiah in general, right? Little m, Messiah. What does that mean? That refers to any anointed king over Israel. David was a Messiah. Solomon was a Messiah, a Mashiach, an anointed one, one who was a king. This is speaking about that because the verse right before verse 7, Psalm 2 verse 6 says this, As for me, says Yahweh, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is who he's talking about, the king. So while Psalm 2 may refer to any of David's descendants who served as king over Israel, Paul tells us unequivocally here that Jesus has ultimately fulfilled verse 7 of Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now wait a minute. This sounds a little weird, doesn't it? Something sounds wonky. (laughs) Jesus is the one who fulfills this. He's called the Son by the psalm. And yet, this word today I have begotten you is being used in reference to what? The resurrection. Today is referring to the resurrection that Paul just mentioned. According to Acts 13 verse 33 the day on which, which God begat Jesus was Easter. Now, wait a minute. Again, this sounds weird because we're asking that question. Is Acts 13.33 saying that Jesus only became God's son after he rose from the dead? That doesn't sound quite right, does it? That's actually an ancient heresy called adoptionism. Adoptionism. It has another fancier name in uh, history, but we'll call it an adoptionistic position. Do we believe that? Is that what the scriptures are teaching? No, no, not quite. That's that point is no, it's an absolute no. But did Jesus become God's son on the day of the resurrection? Yes. In another sense, yes, he did. You can't escape that. It says it right here. Today, I have begotten you. You see, the scriptures are clear that before the human being Jesus existed, that is before the incarnation, he was and has always been and will always be God the Son. Always will be. 
what's helpful, in fact, about Acts chapter 13 is that it's already pointed us back to David. It's taking us back to Psalm 2, a Psalm of David. It reminds us there. Why is that so helpful? Because it reminds us how the title Son was first revealed in Scripture not as a title given to a divine being in terms of the one's relationship with God as Heavenly Father. It was first revealed as a messianic title. The word son, the title son, that we would capitalize with an S, right? Capital S, was actually first given in Scripture as a messianic title. How do we know that? Well, we know it right here from Psalm 2, all about the Messiah. But we know Psalm 2 is based off of the special covenant that God made with David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This comes directly from God's covenant with, with David. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. God says to David through the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down, when you're dead, when you die, David, with your fathers, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Here's a line coming of kings. Uh, An offspring who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There it is. There it is. The divine promise that the Messiah would be God's own son. The king would be, would be like a, a, a God's own son to him. Right? What an encouragement. Now, we know this was fulfilled initially, generically, as Solomon ascended to the throne of Israel and became the king. But we know this wasn't fully fulfilled because Solomon's throne wasn't established forever. It gave way to another king that gave way to another king uh, that, of course, ended before that after Solomon with the splitting of the kingdoms between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Then eventually the line died out, didn't it? I mean, they stopped ruling at the very least. They stopped reigning. So there is a fulfillment coming. There was a fulfillment coming of another descendant of David whose throne would be established forever and ever and ever. That's why Psalm 2 says what it says about God's newly installed king. You are my son. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, it says. So according to Paul, what is Paul saying here? The fullness of God begetting the Messiah of Israel. The fullness of God begetting His Messiah was not going to be some elaborate coronation ceremony, right? Like with some guy walking with a crown and robes and trumpets and palm branches and all sorts of things going on. That was not going to be God begetting His Messiah that He prophesied. No, it is when the, when the a descendant of David rises from the dead. When a descendant of David is victorious even over death, today I have begotten you, God says, of that that son, of that messianic king. This is why Peter, earlier in Acts, in fact, the very first sermon ever recorded of the church, Peter in Acts 2, he makes this statement after just 
emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He has made Him such. Right? Now, equipped with that knowledge, everything, I just gave you a lot of information there, but I hope that's helpful to you. I hope it actually helps you bring together some things that maybe you didn't quite understand before about the fulfillment of prophecy and the line of David and the resurrection and what God says there. Now, equipped with that knowledge, though, of Psalm 2, Acts 13 to Psalm 2 to 2 Samuel 7, listen again to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, check that box, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness uh, a hebraic way of saying the holy spirit by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord now when you understand the background you probably hear that differently don't you now wow what a fulfillment of god's purposes in bringing the messiah Based on all of this, I believe what God has revealed here in Romans 1 is that the resurrection of Jesus was and is the most powerful testimony of Jesus' distinct and divine identity. He is, without a doubt, the Son of God in power. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. As the risen Jesus Himself declared to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. That's the risen Jesus saying that. Of course, as God the Son, He had all power before that. He was God for heaven's sake. But as Jesus, the man descended from David... After the resurrection of the dead, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. God has made him both Lord and Christ on Easter. God has given him all authority as the Davidic King. All authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Yes, Jesus absolutely taught and spoke like no one else ever has. Yes, Jesus performed many miracles. Yes, He even raised people from the dead in His ministry, during His ministry. But when you claim to be giving your life as a ransom for many, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when you claim that others will one day see you coming as the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven... Matthew 26, 64. When you claim that you are the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. When you claim as well that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you, John 14, 6. When you claim these things, you cannot be killed on a criminal's cross and then stay dead. 
But if you don't stay dead, if you don't stay dead, if you do what no one else has ever done, if you beat, not cheat, but beat death and rise up glorified, never to die again, then there is no greater validation. There is no greater confirmation, attestation, attestation, verification of who you've claimed to be. Listen to this. Take a look. How could anyone, when confronted with something as serious as his resurrection from the dead, not take the claims of Jesus seriously? How could anyone when confronted with something as serious as His resurrection from the dead, how could they not take the claims of Jesus seriously? Any honest person cannot. And so what do we do, brothers and sisters, with this Easter declaration that God has given us? Declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. What do we do with that Easter declaration that God has given us? Well, if we are among those who believe, I think it should inspire a couple of questions for us. First of all, a first question that we might want to ask ourselves Ask yourself this, is there something Jesus still needs to prove to me? Is there something that Jesus still needs to prove to me? Based on everything we've seen in regard to the resurrection, I think all of us should say no. (laughs) No, there's nothing else that Jesus has to prove. But it is very easy for us to slip into a different mindset. Very subtle sometimes. A mindset. Even if we don't recognize it, right? We don't acknowledge it for what it is. Even still, we can slip into this mindset. What kind of mindset am I talking about? I'm talking about what we expect from God. When our expectations of God are based on the world rather than the Word, when our expectations are based on our wants instead of God's will, when our expectations are more from our flesh than from our faith, then it's very easy to slip into that subtle trap of, Jesus, I need you to prove that you're going to take care of me. Jesus, I need you to prove that you're really here. Jesus, I need you to prove that I can trust you in this or that way. So do what I'm hoping you'll do. Meet my needs as I've defined them. Fulfill my expectations. Brothers and sisters, I think you know this to be true. Friends, Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to you or anyone. Right? Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to you or to anyone. 
and it's no skin off his back. It's, it's not, it, it, that's, it, there's no fault with him at all. He doesn't have to prove anything to me, to you, to anyone. But by his grace, God has seen fit to declare to us. God has seen fit to demonstrate the Messiahship, the Lordship of Jesus through many evidences, yes, but most clearly through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That really is enough for us in terms of the reassurance we need. That is the reassurance, that reassurance, that resurrection is enough for us in terms of reassurance about the claims of Christ, who He claimed to be, who He is, validated, verified, authenticated by the fact that He beat death. He's triumphed over death, never to die again. Second, number two. Second, Ask yourself, is my acceptance of the identity of Jesus as Messiah demonstrated by my submission to the rule of Jesus as Messiah? Is my acceptance of the identity of Jesus as Messiah demonstrated by my submission to the rule of Jesus as Messiah? If Easter is the day God powerfully declared in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is Lord, then our acceptance of that truth should lead to us yielding under that truth, right? It should lead us to yielding under that truth. If you believe that this room was on fire, and I yelled it out to you, even if you couldn't see where the flames are going to, if you truly believed it was on fire, you would run out of here. You would go. That just fits with the truth that I'm declaring. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we believe Jesus is the rightful King over all things, including us, then we will serve Him as such. We will serve Him as such. Not that any one of us can do that perfectly. That's why we thank Him that He died for us. That's why we thank Him that He paid the price for us. Not that any of us could do this perfectly, but surrender should be the trajectory of your life. Do you believe that? That the trajectory of every Christian life should be surrender to Jesus Christ? How could it not be? Surrender should be our daily disposition, right? If God has powerfully testified to the power of Jesus, then why are we so tempted by earthly offers of power and control? If God has powerfully testified to the Son of God in power, shouldn't that persuade us that God has power for us? Power to live very different lives? Even if that power simply means today giving you strength, power to put one foot in front of the other. Maybe that's all it is for today. Because maybe that's all that you really need for today. Your daily bread that you need. God will provide. Paul connected these same dots of power in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Take a look. 
He wanted his readers to know, those in Ephesus to know, he wanted them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, that's the same power available to us through Christ. That's the same power. Stunningly but wonderfully, that power is available to you and me this morning. And that's confirmed by God's powerful testimony in raising Jesus from the dead. Power to surrender. Power to follow. Certainly, there isn't any leader in this world. There isn't any movement in this world. There isn't any cause in this world. There isn't any philosophy that has been validated in the way or to the degree that Jesus Christ has been validated. Who or what else has beaten death? Cricket? Cricket? Right? No one. We know the answer. Therefore, if that's true, who or what else is worthy of your undying allegiance? Who or what else is worthy? Brothers and sisters, let's embrace Easter as our favorite day and then let us live this day in light of these things. Reassured by what? Reassured by God's declaration. That when he raised Jesus from the dead, he was validating every claim Jesus ever made. He was declaring him to be the Son of God in power through that resurrection. And if you this morning, friend, have never surrendered to Christ, that is, trusting that he is who he claimed to be and can do what he has promised he can do, then today is the day. Today is the day. Make Easter, your favorite day, as you embrace today God's Easter declaration. Uh, His declaration through the resurrection of Christ. Jesus stood in our place, didn't He? He stood in our place to to bear the penalty for our sins. He stood in our place on that cross. He hung in our place there to bear that penalty for our sins. He did that so that we could also stand in His place with Him in new life. We want that for your life as well. We want that new life for you. So let's do this. Let's take time to talk with God. Let's each of us talk with God about what we've heard this morning in light of what we've learned about this powerful validation that God has provided for us through Christ's resurrection. Let's talk with Him about those things. And as we do, let's give thanks that we can know Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Let's pray.